Hey guys, this is Holly Whitaker and this is Home Podcast. So I don't know if anybody's seen the movie Wayne's World, but in it there's this one scene and um, Wayne has basically signed away the rights to the show to Noah's Arcade and then he figures it out and he storms out right before um, they're supposed to record their show, Wayne's World. And Garth is left alone on the couch and the show starts and the camera kind of zooms in and somebody says something about Garth's head exploding. And um, it's one of my favorite scenes in any movie ever. And it kind of describes how odd it feels to be the only one talking in an intro. So there's that. So Laura and I started home podcast in July, 2015, late June, early July, 2015. Laura asked me for a while if I would be interested in doing a podcast. And at the time I was doing a million things and I was just like, no, <laughs> just was one more thing. I didn't want to add to my plate and I didn't really see the value in it. And then not long after that, I was driving to meet some friends, um, Big Sur, and I was in a rental car and listening to Dear Sugar. And um, the question was about um, friend divorces. And the answer that Cheryl Strayed and Steve Almond gave was great, but I was listening to it and I was just like, this doesn't apply to me or what I've been through. Um, and recovery, we have such different dynamics when it comes to friend divorces. It's a whole different thing. Um, when you stop drinking and you lose your friends or, um, you know, it was just one of these moments where I was really struck by how different I would answer the question. And then it just became really clear that this is just such a void. There's such a void in the space, in the podcast space in the self-help space. And, you know, we're talking about practical matters as it pertains to those of us that have stopped drinking and, um, are gone through recovery for, for chemical addiction or, behavioral addiction or, you know, those of us that are in this space. And so I called Laura and, um, was just like, let's do it. And then, uh, not long after, maybe a couple weeks after, you know, we started thinking of names. One of the names we threw around was Sober Village. And then, um, we sat down and I think it was, you know, it was maybe a weekend morning and we just spent a half hour on the phone with a Google doc and laid out, you know, how we might go about starting a podcast. And, uh, it didn't take long. It was a really beautiful thing. Like, you know, Laura did the imagery and the color scheme and came up with the name home. And, um, I did some of the more technical aspects of it and we just kind of split up the duties and, and ran with it. And we started it in the first episode that we did, we posted it. And I remember looking later and seeing that a hundred people had listened to it. And Laura and I talked and we were just amazed that a hundred people would listen to what we had to say. 
And um, and now it's been almost two years and we have, you know, close to 100,000 listens a month, um, which is just insane. And um, it's grown into this really big, beautiful thing that neither Laura and I really imagined it, it would. And, and it's been um, amazing and beautiful and, and such a gift. And it's also been a lot of work. Um, it's a very interesting thing to to grow up in front of people and also to every week, um, you know, return to um, a process of discussing very um, candidly and explicitly our lives and, and also to show up as we are and um, realize that we won't be that way forever and kind of have a record of, of you know, of where we where we are and and then you know from here looking back you know knowing where we were and how far we've come and 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 really just allowing that process to kind of unfold in front of people and so it's been crazy i mean it really has and i know that you know for for both of us it's it's been um probably one of the things and it's one of the things that that i will and I do treasure more than anything. Sorry, I know this is sounding like a goodbye letter. Um, but just to be clear, this is the last episode that we're going to be rolling for a while or taking a break um, because we both need a break. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so this will be the last podcast that we are rolling for a while. And we are going to take some much needed time for ourselves to work on the things in our, our own spheres that, you know, do sometimes take a back seat to putting this out every week. So I uh, want to say a couple of things. We're going to um, roll this interview. Um, this is with Ruth Pody and, and Ruth Pody is an MD. She's also um, a tireless advocate for informing um, informing the masses and also the medical profession um, about uh, addiction medicine and also what happens to the brain in addiction. Uh, one of you, multi- I think a few of you, both sent Laura and I, um, her name, uh, I've, we found her through listeners. And when I, I found her work on the internet, I was just um, blown away that there was an MD doing what she's doing and also, you know, putting out free content explaining um, some concepts that are largely missed in in healthcare, um, especially when it comes to addiction treatment. Um, she has just such a beautiful and eloquent way of explaining the difference between how we treat, you know, a, 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 someone with a heart attack versus someone with a heroin addiction. And um, so, I am really excited to air this. Ruth is a gem, and um, so yeah. So, just gonna nod to that and then also nod to the um the amount of gratitude that laura and i have for you guys who have showed up every week so many of you week after week faithfully um supporting us and letting us be our really imperfect selves (laughs) and um and those of you that have donated and bought merchandise and shared um shared with us your stories, uh, or even, you know, just shared our podcast with other people, like just to, to all of you. Um, this is just the beginning, you know, this podcast is just one of very, um, 
many things that are happening in our world that are changing, um, kind of really changing the conversation about um, what it means to not only um, recover from addiction, face addiction, be an addiction, um, but also what it means to to really uh, live a life where um, you're not numbing out and where you show up week after week, day after day, minute after minute. Um, it is changing. It's really beautiful. It is an honor to be part of this. And um, Laura and I will see you back here um, hopefully soon. But in the meantime, much, much love. You can catch up with Laura on her website, lauramccowan.com, where she blogs regularly. And you can catch up with me at hoopsobriety.com. And until we meet again, so much love. Okay. Hi, Ruth. Hi to Holly and Laura. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited about <laughs> this. Um, our second attempt, and um, I'm really, really glad that we were able to make this happen. Um, I don't remember who. I, I believe somebody from from our Facebook group. One, I don't know if it was a friend of yours or just somebody that found you on the internet. But your, I mean, your work has been sent to me multiple times. Mm-hmm, um, me too. And um, and so yeah, so I've known about you for a while, and I, I think um, I called your because I mean, you put all this content out onto the internet. Um, or, and you speak at conferences, there's, there's YouTube videos of, of, of it and, um, and, and, and you talking about addiction, but also you're a, you know, primarily a family, a family practitioner working in practice. Is that right? And into- yeah, I'm a, okay. a day to day, every day, taking care of brand new babies to 104 year old, uh, patients in normal primary care. It's what I do for my, my work. And then I do a bunch of other jobs on top of it. Right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so speaking. Like, I actually, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's crazy. I'm working like five or six jobs right now. Partly because there's not enough people who have the interest or the knowledge to help people who are struggling with addiction out there. So one of my jobs is I'm the medical director of the local jail. Um, mm. And then last year, not looking for any more work, they opened up a new treatment center out in Western Mass, where we had very little in the way of drug or alcohol treatment. And they couldn't open because they literally had no doctor to be the medical director. And and by state law, you have to have an addiction trained doctor. And there are like five of us in Western Mass. So I said I would do it, uh, having sworn for a long time that I didn't really believe in the model of detox and kicking people to the curb, uh, Mm -hmm. but knowing that this needed to be available to people. So I added that into the mix. Wow. So how did you... How did you get into this? Yeah, because you're you are board certified in addiction, and and that's not. I, I mean, when did you get board certified, and and kind of how did that? Yeah, how did that? Like, how did your venture into addiction happen? So I I, um, I went to Yale for medical school, and Yale tends to be uh, I think known internationally to actually do a lot of psychiatry and addiction work. But at, in medical school, really, I can't recall ever sitting in a Uh, lecture experience and learning anything about addiction ever. Um, And then during even my psychiatry rotation, 
um, I was on the dual diagnosis. So people who have a substance use disorder and a psychiatric illness inpatient facility, but we really didn't spend a lot of time dealing with their substance use. We really focused on the fact that they were actively psychotic. Um, So it wasn't until I I went to uh, my residency and I I trained at Boston University um, and Boston University is based at um, a hospital that used to be known as the Boston City Hospital. It's now Boston Medical Center. And Boston City Hospital was founded in the 1860s, I think. And it was intended to be the poor people's hospital um, in Boston. It was one of many poor people's hospitals that got set up. You know, uh, Chicago has Cook County and Philadelphia mm-hmm. had one and D.C. has one. And obviously, uh, Bellevue in New York is Um, one of the main poor people's hospitals in New York. So that's what Boston City Hospital was. And to be honest, we took care of poor people historically and people with alcohol or other substance use disorder. That's just what Boston City was known for. You're falling Mm -hmm. down drunk on the street. Boston City was your hospital. And um, my dad had trained at Boston City exactly 50 years prior to me arriving there. Mm -hmm. And we used to talk because he was still in practice as a small town doctor as well. We used to sort of talk and giggle with each other because we felt like we were taking care of the exact same patients or the children of or grandchildren of the same patients because it was so alcohol in particular was just such a generational problem. So I have to say that I got both interested, but also qualified in knowing what I was doing um, when I was at Boston Medical Center. And I uh, used to work in the community health centers. We had tons of young people addicted to opiates. I had my buprenorphine license from the moment before it was even approved by the FDA. We we all had our licenses and we're ready to go. But why? I mean, even so, because a lot of people have that exposure, right? But they don't necessarily follow it. Um, or stay interested in it or really like go to the length that you have. So what was it that nor understand it to the length, right? Nor understand it to how you know it. Um, you know, I really feel that my role as a primary care provider is to be present with people and be able to help people who are suffering. And the people that suffer the most in my practice are people who struggle with mental illness or addiction. Like, they're the ones who need the most help. And so, Mm. you know, if I felt as though I was working in a world where people with infectious disease were not getting the care that they needed and nobody else was willing to take care of them and they were being abandoned on the street corners, I would have become more competent in managing that. But instead, the quote-unquote classic diseases out there get tons of attention you know Mm -hmm. congestive heart failure diabetes so much money and time Mm -hmm. go into these diseases even though they represent a fairly small portion of american society and as we all know it's all funded by the drug companies right it's about Mm, where money gets made and if you're not making money helping people either through pharmaceuticals or through a device that gets implanted, then I think that American medicine in bizarre ways has less interest in you. So for me, it was about wanting to be helpful to the people who needed my help the most. And so I was out working in Boston, had a nice life, was having kids and was married to another doctor. And um, we moved out to rural Western Mass because my husband had a National Health Service Corps scholarship. And this is also where I grew up. So my whole family was out here. And when I arrived, here, I looked around, I said, hi, who's taking care of people with addiction? And the answer was <laughs> nobody. Like, what are you even asking that question for? We don't, I mean, it wasn't even a question to anybody else. When was that? Like, time frame? Uh, just because... It- yeah, 2010 is when I moved my full-time practice to Western Mass. And so it, was it wasn't that, even that long ago. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago, yeah. And I just, I arrived in this rural county, which is both rural and poor, um, really um, 
high joblessness rate, high high trauma rate, you know, very high teenage pregnancy, lots of sex abuse. Like it's not a healthy county in many ways, and yet it's a very healthy county in other ways. Um, so when I asked that question, the answer was nobody. I thought, oh man, this is a this is a hot mess. We have a huge addiction problem, specifically to opiates, but there's this under always an underdiagnosed problem with alcohol. People mm-hmm. never walk into their primary care office and say, hi. I'm struggling with alcohol and I need your help. They never do that unless right. they get hauled in there by somebody else, right? They get hauled in by a family member or they got their third OUI and they're mandated to be there. That is a disorder that gets unnoticed by most primary care practice practitioners. And it makes me crazy. Well, and also yeah. I think it's downplayed a, a lot. I think it's downplayed a lot. I mean, I, I have a lot of friends that are doctors and, and I've had conversations before that go like, this like my patients might want to cut down on their drinking but they don't want to stop drinking and not only that the the i mean it's also one of these things where the doctor is actually taking the drug that the patient's addicted to um in a yep. lot of cases which makes it a very different thing than you know cocaine or meth um so just to slow it down kind of back it up a little bit so when did you get board certified in addiction medicine was that right out of uh, residency or was that no 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 no, I did it four years ago. I went okay. back and did my certification. It <laughs> felt like you weren't considered legitimate in the work you were doing without that certification. So yeah. I thought, oh, I'll just go do the training and get it <laughs> Why done. Why not do more school? And <laughs> yes. was that, how many doctors are board certified in addiction medicine in America? Well, it, the number was 3,000. It's going up. More and more people are doing it because there's, there's a massive problem out there. And yeah. And, um, no shortage of jobs. If you have an addiction medicine license, you can work anywhere you want in this yeah, country. Yeah, I guess get paid well for it. I, I don't, I mean, I'm not in the work for the money, but I think more people are doing it. It's still not meeting the need it's for sure. Not meeting the need. And what, how many doctor? how many board certified, like, um, uh, PCPs are there? Who are still doing primary care yeah. or, or just yeah. addiction work? Yeah. I don't, I don't know that. I mean, there's, you know, you can be anything, and get your board certification in, in addiction, addiction medicine, medicine. right? A, right. Yeah, you could be a cardiothoracic surgeon and say, "I want to do this too because yeah, yeah. I take care of people who have endocarditis from their IV drug use." Right. And although I'm fixing the symptom of their disease, they have an infection of their heart valve. I actually want to really treat their real problem that they struggle with, which is their addiction. Yeah, I don't know many yeah. cardiothoracic surgeons who do that, but you can imagine making that leap thinking, wow, this is the third heart valve I've replaced on this person. It appears I'm not helping them. I'm just keeping them alive, but they really need other kind of help. So anybody can do that certification. How many people embed it into a primary care practice? I'm not sure. I think most people end up just doing addiction work over time. Mm. I think what I what I'm trying to understand is how many doctors there are versus how many doctors are certified in this one specific facet of it. I get like trying to like how many put, doctors in, oh, mm-hmm, in like, the nation are there. I mean, like how many people consider themselves really qualified at helping people with addiction when somebody with addiction walks into their office? I would say that number is a very small portion of primary care doctors, maybe less than five percent or ten percent actually can get at the problem and the way that you describe which is um, seeing the difference that you know there are people who develop a misuse of something and it's starting to actually control their lives and they're starting to self-medicate with it and they're starting to crave it they're starting to go off the rails and catching people then and acknowledging with them of wow it seems like you're developing an unhealthy relationship is that really what you want what can we do to help you more 
to di- divert yourself away from that path, knowing your history. Right. Um, yeah. but, and, and then being able to offer people both the therapy and sort of the structural support and medicine when that's that's warranted to help treat their addiction. Very few people feel comfortable with that. When yeah. you look at the buprenorphine licenses, the people who did their SAMHSA waiver to prescribe what's called Suboxone is yeah. the non-generic for it. Um, you know, we always thought that it was going to be a primary care solution, that this drug was approved, <laughs> and I think, in 2001 or 2002. In my entire residency, drove down to Providence, Rhode Island. There were, you know, 15 or 18 of us, and we all did our waivers together because we're family doctors. This is our job. That's what we. That's how it was built. And then, lo and behold, very few people did it. And mm. even those who did their waivers, very few actually began prescribing. Or if they prescribed, they would prescribe to five people or fewer. So, you, go ahead. Is there a limited number? But I thought there was a limited number on the number of people that could actually prescribe it. A limitation on that. There's not a limit on how many people can do their waivers and prescribe it. There's a limit to how many people you can prescribe to. Okay. So in the first year, you could prescribe up to 30. That's mm-hmm. actually a big number, to be honest. And then you can apply and then you could prescribe up to 100. Now you can prescribe up to 275. Okay. So the limit is is not the problem. The problem is getting people to realize, wow, I have a lot of people who struggle with an opiate addiction in my practice. And how can I help them more okay. and not feel like, you know, in a practice, you become the only Suboxone provider and you get sort of ostracized. And in my yeah. practice, I said, this is ridiculous that I'm the only Suboxone provider. What the hell are the rest of you guys doing? Do your jobs. We have less than 10% of our people struggle with diabetes. And I have 10 people in my office whose sole job is to help people with their diabetes, yeah, their nutrition, and diabetic educators. And I have one person who's helping the 10 to 13 to 20%, depending on my practice and how you looked at it, who struggle with an addiction. Yeah. How is that possible? Well, I mean, I think one of the things, and this is a question that we had kind of for later on in this, but one of the things that I noticed, and I mean, it's just that it is the attitude towards addiction. And I, I really am curious to hear you talk about this. I mean, this is the thing that kind of like, I think, um, cooks me the most, which is that doctors are the ones that are prescribing, especially when we talk about opiates, right? Especially when we talk about like the opioid addiction, which like you just showed a slide in one of your talks that shows like it's the increase in deaths from opiate addiction is 276% from 2000 to 2010, right? Like it's across the board, the thing that's increased the most, the, the number, like in, in terms of cause of death. And that stems from a prescription of opiates, right? And so we have doctors that are prescribing highly addictive drugs that are not trained to help people when they become addicted to these drugs. And not only that, from what I saw was that when people were addicted, not only is it, you know, like in my own experience, even with alcohol addiction, I was referred outside to a 12-step program, right? But not only that, people are labeled once they once they move from, you know, using into abusing, they are labeled, actively labeled as pill, pill seekers, like as problems. They are then right. like no longer designated patients. They are seen as pill seekers. And so it's um, I mean, it's, I just like in all of that. I mean, I just would love to hear what you have to say about that whole thing because it's the most I think uh, appalling thing that we can like that I can think of um, when it comes to how addiction is treated in, in healthcare. I totally agree. We, I mean, I, there's no doubt in my mind that over prescribing for 15 to 20 years led to the beginnings of this epidemic. It's not what kills people now. I mean, it's heroin and fentanyl and carfentanil that are killing people. But we started this problem. American medicine actually created this problem all on our own. Yet we weren't there on the other side to take care of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
what you just described, Holly, is, is so accurate because we actually fire these people. We look for any reason to get mm-hmm. rid of them. Yeah. Um, and I mm-hmm. and you can't imagine doing that for for anybody else. If I mean, think of the places where we have caused active harm to people in medicine. There's there's a handful of cases of of experiences that where you could say that. Um, you know, doing lobotomies was really bad. Doing the Tuskegee experiments when we denied penicillin to African-American men in the South who were struggling with syphilis. Like, there are lots of bad things historically we did in medicine. And we, like, take total responsibility for that. And it's taught in medical school, like, how could we have ever done it this way and then not acknowledge that this was wrong and go back and make retribution for it. And instead, we, re, without a doubt in my mind, there are absolutely people who suffer with chronic pain. They get benefit from chronic opiates. I believe in treatment for people who get benefit and are not putting themselves in harm's way and have developed an addiction. That's a set aside for me right there. And that's 80 to 85% of people are okay on their meds. So I'm not going to, I mean, I'm happy to talk about chronic pain management, but then this other set of people, 15 to 20% who actually have, cre- who have, are, are now in trouble and then we abandon their care. I, I mean, how can you ever abandon and people's care? And not only abandon their so care, what? you label them as problems in the system yes. and you just said it, you, they get fired as patients. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's right. Sorry, Laura. Yeah, what? We are the ones who started it. Yeah, no doubt about it. It outrages me. I mean, one of the things I'll say is that you didn't need somebody to be addiction trained. You didn't. You just needed people who cared. I didn't. The work I do now is not any different since I got my addiction training. It is the same exact work. I mean, I was doing the exact same work before. It's just that I have extra credentials and I pay more money every year for going to conferences and for all my licensing. But the work is the same. And I'm married to you know my husband, who's a family doctor, just like me in a rural area, and he does the exact same work I do. And he's actually going to just suck it up and do his board certification this year because he feels like it legitimizes him. But it's all about jumping through academic hoops to even do this because his quality of his work won't alter in any way. Um, Sorry, Laura, you were trying to say something. I just want, I mean, I have my ideas about the answer, but like, what is your take on why that is? Like why we have why we do that, why that's happened to people, why we label them, why we fire them. Um, I mean, I, you could answer, I think, because I think you have a good sense of it. You know, I people, do, but I want to hear yeah. what you say. I want to hear you explain because yeah. I've heard it, you do it before. Um, so I actually think that the average American trained clinician, and I'm going to throw NPs and PAs and MDs and DOs all into the same group because I don't think the training is better in any of those other training programs. But I think for the most part, there's a strong belief that this is moral failing. This is lack of willpower. These are people on the wrong side of the tracks. Just, you know, they'd been brought up the right way. This wouldn't have happened to them. So there's this tremendous amount of stigmatization and judgment without any doubt, right, that we have towards our patients. Mm -hmm. And then there's this sense of, well, not only are they themselves a problem and their trouble and it wasn't anything I did to them, but I don't even know how to help them, right? And I'm not, again, speaking for myself here, but speaking for a lot of people who say, I don't I don't want the addicts in my waiting room. They make my waiting room look bad. They're nodding off. They're disheveled. They're whatever. I don't know, whatever people might think. They cause more trouble for my front office staff because when their dopamine levels are low, which is a lot of the time, they can be un- unpleasant. Um, right. And 
I would rather not manage this. I already manage enough. I'm a primary care doctor. I'm supposed to manage every travel vaccine and every case of COPD exacerbation and every foot infection and the knee injection. Like when you're in primary care, you're in charge of the entire body. And I think for some people, they're so overwhelmed with the burden of their current workload, they can't imagine taking on another thing. I actually feel for for those people. I really do because it is hard. But the truth is you signed up to be a primary care doctor, which meant you loved taking care of the whole body. And from my experience, there's no better way to actually help somebody than help them get better from um, a substance use disorder. Like you really are doing life-saving work and you're not, you know, you're not helping gunshot victims in the ER, which for the adrenaline junkies, that's what they love. When you're in primary care, you're not an adrenaline junkie. You're somebody who loves long-term relationships, managing chronic disease And what better defines that than people who struggle with a substance use problem? Like, it's a chronic condition. People get better. They relapse a little bit. They get a little worse. And and your job, my job, other people's job is to be there for them 190% when they're actually struggling the most. Not to say, wow, you're doing terribly. You're fired, which is what everybody's (laughs) instinct is. You're doing terribly on your support. You do this really great example of um, in one of your talks about and maybe you can just do it about um, a man who comes in to the ER, you know, having cardiac arrests and then a, a woman who comes in ODing and what the difference looks like for those two people. Yeah. So one of the things that Laura's talking about is when I, every week I go out to a school, a church, a, a hospital grand rounds. I go somewhere once a week. Is I try to limit it to that because I have kids and I work a gazillion jobs. But I go out and I talk about the what I call, the talk is called the physiology of addiction. And its job is to help people understand how it is that the one of the more critical organs in your body, the brain, neuro adapts to uh, a substance in a really non-positive way that can really get people's lives off course. And in, in that talk, I have a slide that pops up and it has a picture of two people on it. And there's a, a 68-year-old guy who's holding his chest. And I tell the story that he's a 68-year-old guy living in your hometown um, who's looking a little gray a little blue around the lips. And his, his wife says to him, honey, you don't look so good. What's going on? And he says, it's okay. I've got a little indigestion. And she says, no, honey, I don't think this is indigestion. I'm calling 911. And 911 shows up at that gentleman's house and takes one look at him and thinks, holy smokes, this guy's not doing well. Um, they give him a sublingual nitroglycerin. They give him a beta blocker. They give him some oxygen. They put in a big bore IV to hang in some morphine. And they it's transmit from his living room, his EKG, to the local hospital. And when that local hospital looks at EKG, they say, don't even bring him here. Like, bypass us entirely. This guy's having a massive anterior wall MI, and he needs to be in a cardiothoracic operating room in the next several hours. So he gets transported to the biggest tertiary quaternary care hospital around. And we live in New England, so we have plenty of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's brought in, and he has quadruple bypass, and he's brought to the cardiac care unit for four or five days, and then he's brought to the medical floor for another week. And he has a new cardiologist, and he gets a social worker, or even a psych consult, because he's likely to get depressed, because he's a man who's had a massive heart attack. He goes home, and he has a primary care doctor, a new cardiology appointment, and he gets to go to cardiac rehab for six to eight weeks. And when I ask the audience, I say, what does that cost? And people are remarkably um, accurate in their estimates, and they'll say a quarter million dollars. And I say, yep, this is a quarter million dollars worth of medical care that just happened over a period of six to eight weeks. But I want to talk now about his next-door neighbor, who's that 24-year-old. And the picture is a young woman lying on a bathroom floor. 
And in her case, you know, her mom knows that she struggles with an opiate use disorder. And her mom has been fearful for her daughter's life for a long time. She has Narcan at her house. And one morning when she knocks on the bathroom door and there's no response and that door is locked and that mom kicks in that door to find her daughter lying on the ground, not breathing in blue. She calls 911 first and then administers Narcan, which is the drug reversal um, drug to get opiates out of the brain so people will start breathing again. Her daughter doesn't respond to Narcan. 911, police and fire arrive. And in Massachusetts, every one of those entities carries naloxone with them or Narcan with them. They administer four more doses of Narcan before that young woman comes back breathing again. They bring her to the emergency room. And then I ask the audience, what happens to her in our local ER? And across the board, people basically say nothing. Nothing happens to her. Maybe she gets a brochure. Sometimes she gets more opiates. Um, But basically, she is asked to leave or she gets up of her own accord, even though she has vomiting, she has diarrhea, she's in acute, severe withdrawal. She feels terrible like the worst you could possibly feel because we yanked out a drug that was actually she was in a good high and then we yanked it out instantly she feels awful she walks out of the er with nothing and then when i go back to the audience and i say to them i want to tell you more about my 68 year old guy with a giant heart attack let's talk about him more so he smokes a pack and a half a day he kicks back a 12 pack of beer a day he goes to mcdonald's four times a week both of his parents had cardiovascular issues his dad died at the age of 59 of a massive heart attack he doesn't exercise. I actually don't know this guy, although I am assigned as his primary care doctor, because I saw him four years ago, and I told him he had high blood pressure, but he never came back to see me, and he never filled a script. And then I ask, you know, does this guy struggle with addiction? And everybody nods their head, yeah, he's addicted. What's he addicted to? Well, he's addicted to nicotine. He's likely addicted to alcohol. He's addicted to fat and sugar. Definitely not addicted to healthy exercise and meditation and going to yoga class. This is a guy who, by and large, created his disease, created it. You can't argue with me on that. Like 68-year-old healthy people do not have massive heart attacks. It's infrequent. You read about the rare marathon runner who has something happen. But in general, we all lived an incredibly healthy life. Bad things will happen to us uh, randomly or genetically. But in general, most of us living an incredibly healthy life, doing what you two are doing, eating well, going to yoga, exercising a lot, creating healthy relationships with people who love us. You get to live a really long time. And so when I say a quarter million dollars got spent on a guy who you could shame and blame and wag your finger at and say, I'm going to deny you care. You know, you made this hot mess in his living room. EMS could have wagged their finger and said, you know what? You caused this heart attack. Right? You smoked, you drank, you're a hot mess. You never saw a primary care doctor. We're actually going to deny care to you today. We're not going to we're not going to truck you over to the ER. And he would have just died in his living room, which is what could have happened to that 24 year old and probably will happen to that 24 year old. That, I think, is a moment in the audience where people stop and they think, you know what? There's not any difference between these two things as diseases. And what the difference is, is how the American medical system responds to these two things. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to... Yeah. There's one thing I really want to, like, there's one thing I want to explore. Just give me a second to kind of rattle this off. So one of the one of the conversations that I've had uh, over the years is that, uh, especially when, when talking with, with doctors, is that there is, by and large, a belief that this is more of a public health issue. This is more of a... And, and not only that, that it's a... It's more of a... Um, it, it is, it's beyond what is expected to be provided within healthcare. Um, you know, that there's, um, it extends far beyond, uh, far beyond what a health, what the healthcare field is prepared to deal with. And, and I agree with that on some 
degree, like I do agree with because like, you know, there is like you said, um, you know, like there's, you know, f- uh, there's the genetic component. There's also the, the, um, you know, age of use. There's also like when, when use begins age of use, there's also the, you know, the ACE like trauma, uh, you know, trauma definitely is, is, um, in play. There's a lot of, there is a lot of sociological, there's also a lot of psychological, a lot of, a lot of other factors that kind of play into the development of addiction. And, um, it's something that's really, you know, so there's that piece there, but then there's also this other idea when we look at something like what drives up the healthcare costs, right? Like, so the top of the pyramid, like 6% of patients drive up, you know, uh, account for 6% of health, uh, 10, no, 60% of healthcare spend. There is, um, and the top of the pyramid, the most expensive patients are patients with diabetes, um, or, or heart conditions or, um, other chronic issues. And, um, and those are the patients that we end up spending the most money on. There is one of my, um, one of my friends, um, gave a talk. Alexandra Drain gives this, gave this talk and has given it for years. She was, um, the founder of, um, oh God, I'm I'm not going to be remember, uh, remember the name of it, but she was the founder of a, of a company that, um, collected health data. And what she found in her, um, what she found through her work, she, uh, I think she was working with, um, healthcare coordinators. So she had a company that like of, of, of nurses that helped to coordinate care and, um, and work with complex cases. And what she found in her, in her work was that, um, that a lot of the stuff that prevented people from actually healing was the, were these other socioeconomic factors, right? Was, she called them the unmentionables. There's a great talk on it. And she talks about how, you know, people, um, you know, that maybe struggle with these like really high cost diseases, um, do not like they go to their doctor and they're not talking about how, what their credit card debt is doing, um, or how they're taking care of their aging parents and what that does to them or, or the stress of taking care of kids or how their sex life is shit or how, um, you know, like all these things that actually factor into whether or not they're going to eat healthy or be healthy. Um, and so I think there's this like really interesting thing where when we look at like actually what drives up Mm -hmm. healthcare costs and we talk about these chronic illnesses and just like what you just talked about, right? Like this guy that you spend $250,000 on, um, you know, he doesn't have, you know, he's, it, it, you know, if he's isolating every night with, with beer and he's eating, you know, shitty food and he's smoking cigarettes and maybe he has a high stress job and maybe there's all these other things, all these other unmentionables, right? And substance abuse would be an unmentionable. He is driving up the healthcare costs and we're not addressing that. And then with addiction, mm-hmm. we throw the entire thing out. Mm-hmm. And so I think there is a cross the board, what I'm trying to get at here is that across the board, there's a failing of healthcare in that it is so much focused on, not on prevention, it's so focused on just fixing it when it's in the red zone that there, you know, that, and we don't take time. And, and it's because there's a lot of this unmentionable stuff that doesn't go into the equation of healing people. People aren't going to take their medication if they can't get out of bed because they're depressed or people aren't going to take their medication if they're running from 5 a.m. until midnight, you know, taking care of children and parents and husbands and you know what I mean? So I just think that like when I look at it, I think that part of the problem is because addiction kind of is in this, it's enveloped in this like public health issue or this socioeconomic or this behavioral, whatever. I can't think of the right term, but you know, you see what I'm saying? It's enveloped in this like, um, out, you know, it's, it's enveloped in this, like this space of unmentionable, but then there's also 
this like, um, but because, um, because there's money involved in treating diabetes and treating chronic heart conditions, um, that, um, that it's also carved out of that space. And then we end up just throwing, you know, good money after bad when it comes to how we take care of people. And therefore it's, you know, I mean, it's, I think it's one of the biggest problems that we have with the, with the healthcare system in general is that we don't take time to actually, we carve people up. We don't take time to actually address what's going on. Really? Why are you sitting at home every night with a 12 pack of beer, McDonald's, a pack of cigarettes and, um, not taking your medication? Right. I totally agree with all that you just said. And I think it makes uh, prescribers, it makes clinicians feel impotent when they realize, really, there's nothing I can do to help you other than to hand you a prescription, right? Like, I can't fix your housing insecurity or the fact that you eat terribly and have no access to good quality food. Um, you know, that yoga classes are running 18 bucks a pop, but I have no good way to get you there. Or quite honestly, that, you know, you work three jobs because you work a terrible, low paying mm. You know, people out there, people in my field complain how hard they work. I think you don't work hard. You know who works hard? People who are working three different jobs to barely keep their people, their family out of living on the streets. Those people are working hard jobs and not getting reimbursed for it. So I totally agree with you. You know, when you look at the data of what kills people in this country, you know, in medical school or whatever, you just recite it off, right? The number one killer is heart disease. The number two is cancer. In some states, those numbers have just flipped. But really, the number one killer in this country is tobacco. The number two mm-hmm. killer in this country is, you know, very poor food and lack of exercise. And the mm. number three killer is alcohol. So yeah. two of the top preventative. killers are is that preventative? It's all preventative. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yep. Totally. And, yep. you know, lots of states spend no money on preventive health care. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you in Massachusetts, which is where Laura is. And you're talking to me in California, which is, uh, you know, these are two states that actually spend money on health care prevention. Yep. Mm-hmm. But you look at most of the South. Um, they spend no money doing preventive work to make their people healthy. And they have some of the least healthy populations in our country. Uh, (laughs) There's a lot of work to be done, right? But you guys think how far far the conversation has come on this subject, even in the last two or three or four years. You guys started writing this how long ago? Your hip sobriety, when did that go out? 2014. Right. So that that was three years ago. Are you kidding me? And you started the blog in 2015? I mean, you started the podcast, podcast. when? Yeah, 2015. Yeah. And all of your listeners, yeah. think how knowledgeable they are on the subject. When three or four or five years ago, zero knowledge. Right. I feel like the conversation is shifting and we are making positive moves. I do think that. The question is, in, in today's governmental world, certainly on a federal level, are any of the shifts really going to happen fast enough to save lives. Well, and I don't think that's worth, but I don't think, I mean, when we talk about like, you know, I don't want to get into politics, but when, when the election happened, you know, the biggest thing, the biggest thing I got from that was that change doesn't happen in the government. You know, change happens on the ground. Like the, like the, the government might respond to, but the change really starts to happen in, in what humans actually do and how they live their lives and, and what it is that they do. And so, um, but, but money I, helps though, Holly, right? Oh, having money chase that God, and getting no. really good mental health care <laughs> and having trauma treatment in our schools, all of that makes a huge difference in it the really long-term does. prevention of chronic disease. It does. And, and, and just have people live good, happy lives. 
Yeah, I know. I know. And I think that there's, I mean, there's so much to be said on this. Like when, you know, when, when we just like got through talking about what we just talked about, it just feels really defeating when you think about it for like, when you think about it in those terms. I mean, really, when you look at the big picture of it and you look at the healthcare system and you also look at the educational system and I, my sister works in, um, my sister works with, with, with students that, um, in a really, um, well, she now works in, uh, in juvenile detention centers, helping make educational, um, educational plans, but she's worked in, you know, uh, in junior high setting and elementary setting, um, in, uh, you know, with some pretty, uh, disenfranchised kids. And, um, and we talk about it and it's just, she works, you know, she works with the children of the, of, of the, uh, you know, she's looking at the beginning of the pipeline and I look at a lot, I work with the end of the pipeline and, um, and it is, there's just, there's so much to be done, I think, and, and, and not only like in the educational system and also in the healthcare system. Um, but I do agree shifts are, are happening, but when you do step back from it, you look at where all the money goes and how much money, when you go to a conference, like, have you ever been to HIMSS? You go to something like Hymns, there's like, you know, six football fields for, full of vendor booths of people selling shit. And it's yeah. just like when you look at something like that and then you go and you look at like, a, you know, a primary care physician office in West Virginia and the resources that they're working with. Um, it's just um, it makes you like it splits you down the middle. Um, yeah. Yep. So let's let's look at. Can, yeah, please. Well, I've seen it. I, I was hoping to talk to you two a little bit about women and alcohol specifically, yes. because um, I know that that's, it, is it fair to say that's where you guys started? Like with this yeah. approach, right? Definitely. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and maybe you've covered this endlessly, but I do think that this has been a public health shift like nothing we have seen other than the opiate use problem, which really has been a 20 year thing in the making. I feel like alcohol in women has been 20 years in the making. And this shift that we're seeing of women struggling with an alcohol use disorder has been extraordinary. And I think, again, it's a place where primary care is missing the boat. When you when you acknowledge that 10% of us struggle with an alcohol use disorder, and then I look at the average primary care doctor and say, look, you have 2000 patients. Can you take a, a moment to acknowledge your 200 who have an alcohol use disorder. Can you name any of them, right? And they're like, I got about six I can remember, right? Because they really stand out. They're in and out of the hospital. They have cirrhosis. They have end stage at the end of dying because of their alcohol. But the other 180 or 195 of them, they have no idea who these people are because they don't know who they are because they haven't That's figured right. it out yet. That's right. And is that is that real 2,000 patients for a primary care primary doctor? Care. Yeah. yeah, full-time primary yeah. care is about 2,000 patients, yep. Yeah. So that's a real number. Some really busy practices probably have even more, more. than that, especially if they're doing supervising um, advanced practice people. So yeah, big numbers. And that's okay. a lot of people to know, right? So yep. yeah, but you, but you, you would think your people who struggle with alcohol are ones who would actually theoretically, they would show up in the system more because they'd be falling their little old ladies who are drinking way too much and they fall and break their hip. Or they, you know, they, they likely have sort of um, more insomnia, more depression, more things that might bring them into a primary care practice. But again, it just gets missed. I, I, every day, I think I ask 20 times a day, tell me about your relationship to alcohol. I ask it again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And I just throw it out like that. And people will say, I don't drink at all. And I used to skip over that because I was like, oh, I just saved one second. And instead I say, tell me why you don't drink. Because there's often a story there. And they'll say one of three things. Um, they'll say, I'm an alcoholic. 
And I'll think, mm. holy smokes, how did I not know that? I've known mm. you for 10 years. How did I not know that? Two, they'll say, my dad was a drop-down drunk and I hated him. And I smell that mm. smell and it brings me back to being a scared seven-year-old at home. And then I think to myself, that's really helpful data, right? I have a, a person who had a childhood that had at least some stressors in it. And that helps me understand them a little bit more and might help me understand why they're struggling currently with something else. And then the third thing is, is happens even less often, I would say, they'll just say, I never developed the taste for it or something. And there's no other backstory. And then when I, when I ask particularly women that question, tell me about your relationship to alcohol, there's this sort of dismissive, Oh, you know, I have a couple drinks at night. Yeah. And, and I'm like, tell me more about that. Like, what is it you're drinking? And I think we all know the answer is often wine. And I say, tell me what's in a wine glass, because it's just amazing to me how much alcohol we are all drinking as women, because we're overwhelmed and stressed out and we're self-medicating for a thousand things. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe there's been a time in history where women had this much on their plates. And it could be that I'm sort of talking to a group of of women here who are at the stage of their lives where we're working, we're raising kids, we're walking the dogs, we're cleaning the house. We have a thousand things. I don't know what your list is like every day when you wake up, but it's endless. I sometimes Mm -hmm. by seven in the morning, I think, oh my God, I am not even going to come close. I'm already behind seven in the morning. And I can acknowledge (laughs) that my day has already fallen apart. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us wake up like that. Well, I think it'd be great to start with what are the actual recommendations of uh, like, what are the what it what keeps you below um, the the max uh, recommendation uh, recommended? I I don't even want to say recommended, but what what keeps you below the max uh, drinking? uh, Why can't I say the words? How much is a woman like supposed to stop at when it comes to alcohol each week? What does that look like? How many drinks? It's supposed to be seven drinks a week for a woman, 14 drinks for a man a week. And seven and drinks are what? How many ounces? So an ounce, for wine, the answer is five ounces of yes. wine. So everybody who's listening needs <laughs> to take That's like breath. two inches. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And I actually, I really think everybody needs to put five ounces of water or some liquid in their wine goblet and acknowledge that's the height of a single drink because yeah. that is not what anybody pours, right? No. That's no. like a no. glug. And, and people glug, 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 glug when they're pouring the bottle, right? They, they fill it up, not quite to the brim because there could be spillage, but, you know, most people are pouring themselves two to three equivalents of wine when how you're many, measuring it. How, what's, so five, how many five ounce servings are in a bottle of wine? Is that four? I'm trying to think. No, no. for five ounce servings. How many? Um, yeah. I think there's four, four, like eight ounce yeah, I think so too. I think that. it's either seven five ounces in a bottle. So one of us has to sit and do the math because we have to convert the milliliters. Seven hundred fifty milliliters is three cups, isn't that right? Isn't a liter? Yeah, I mean, I, all I know, I know is I could get four real glasses out of like big glasses of wine. How many glasses? Or how many? I'm going to look it up really quick because I want to. I actually, how many ounces of wine in a bottle? Okay. Um, 25. Okay. So there are five. So basically in, in one bottle of wine, there are five servings. And so we're saying that basically one bottle of wine, one bottle in like, uh, you know, and one and a quarter bottle per week. Um, is the max. That's like that's the, the max. That's, that's right. The max. One bottle should last you five days, right? Yes. And, and so 
that is for wine. <laughs> and the answer for beer is just a normal 12-ounce beer is considered one drink. Yes. And then for hard alcohol, it's considered one and a half ounces of hard alcohol. And the problem is that most people make their gin and tonic or their mojito. Nobody's measuring anything. I mean, I bartenders don't always measure things. Yeah. And they're just glug-glugging whatever in. And if you actually pause and measure, you would acknowledge, well, I just poured myself a three-drink equivalent of a gin and tonic. So in my issue is I don't sit there and blame or shame. I sit there and say, I just need you to acknowledge what you're drinking. You need to sit here with me and acknowledge that you're taking in well beyond what is recommended. And for me, the question is not that. It's why. What is that about for right. you? Like, what does it do for you at the end of a day or at two in the afternoon, right? Because that's when a lot of suburban women are drinking. It's two. Mm-hmm. They've done their yoga. The kids are coming home. They're out with their mommies. And it's so common for all of us to go out with our girlfriends and drink. It's the norm. And it, what's yep. not the norm is to not do that. And you guys do such a good job of talking about that. I love that. I mean, I, I, I use your stuff all the time when I'm sitting with a young woman, 20s, 30s, or 40s, who has clearly lost control of alcohol and it's starting to control her. I say, this is a great place where you could turn to to get advice from women who look and seem a heck of a lot like you to know that you're not alone. Because um, these 20 and 30 and 40-year-old women, had they really didn't know how much control that they had lost. So um, the ratios of alcoholism used to be a nine to one ratio between men and women. And that is historically just true. I can say that again, nine to one. Historically, (laughs) men were nine. There were nine alcoholic men to one alcoholic woman, like 20 years ago, 50 years ago, right? And, um, you know, I can count on the number of two fingers, the number of women who women who whose bellies I would tap and in, in when I was a resident. I spent all kinds of time taking care of people with end-stage cirrhosis who had fluid in the abdomen, and we would do something called a paracentesis, where you would remove the fluid. It gave them more comfortable. It's the very end stage of alcohol use. Yeah. And really, yeah. two women. And all I could tap a belly across a room. It was a skill set. I did it every single day, but they were all men, every one of them, except for two women in my many years working at, at Boston University. And now the ratio is six to three men to women. And that really has shifted in the last 15 to 20 years. Yeah. Talk about a public health problem that no one Mm -hmm. is paying attention to. Mm-hmm. And, and they're average. You know, when is the last time you've gone into one of these boutique women's stores, right? And it's all about chocolate and wine everywhere. Those little hand painted signs. Is, I mean, everything is about drinking. It is mm-hmm. so over the top. There was this ad recently on Cosmopolitan, a Cosmopolitan sponsored ad, and it showed how this woman was able to hide three bottles of wine, and it showed her like on her person. So one, like a flask in her scarf. She had you know flasks in her shoes. <laughs> there was a bracelet with a the flask. There was something she put in her bra and. Um, also one that she strapped and pulled out through um, through her legs. And so um, there's, you know, it's not only, there's this normalization around it that like, that we need, like there there is just like that women need wine. This is our thing. Women need wine. And it's not only that, it's like it's sold to us and not only is it sold to us by Cosmopolitan or by, out, by, by alcohol companies, it's also sold to us by like the wellness industry, Well Plus Good was posting wine mm-hmm. memes. Um, Lululemon came out with their own beer um there is now yep. beer yoga um there have been there has Why been a yoga? huge well, I mean, that's like 
Yes, there's been a huge uh, coupling of the wellness industry with that, with with um, you know, with drinking. It's it's a very like it's a because because it is because it targets there's it targets a very like the specific person they're going after. Um, so it's um, it's not only normalized; it's it's really pushed. Um, it's I mean, and 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 it's ev- you cannot when you start to open your eyes to it, you cannot escape it. You see it everywhere, and it's right. horrifying. Yep. Yep. It, and you too, you started out with it in the very beginning. Um, oh, no, I just lost my train of thought. But the, the sense that um, there's a healthy amount. And the truth is, all of that stuff is funded by the alcohol industry. What is a healthy amount of alcohol a day for heart disease? It may be zero. It may be one ounce, but it's probably not more than that. Right. And, and people will say to me, my doctor said to have two glasses of red wine every day and it would prevent my heart attack. It's more important mm-hmm. than my statin. I'm thinking, holy smokes, that's because your doctor is drinking. Right. And you right. said that. That's right. that is because doctors have a hard time giving advice when they're doing it themselves. That's right. And so, you know, when you talk to, a, you know, a doctor who is inactive and out of shape and that guy's lecturing you about the fact that you need to get in shape, it's hard to believe them. And lots right. of doctors, they have stressful jobs. They tend to have a higher than average addiction problem, both to alcohol and other drugs. And it's, you know, they go home and crack open a bottle of whatever. So um, uh, I think yeah. that what, what what is not funded is what you all believe in and what I believe in is that, you know, having a healthy lifestyle of getting plenty of exercising you know, where's my industry that's going to study mindfulness-based stress reduction and meditation that's and what right. that does to cardiovascular disease and cancer, right? right. It's very strong, the link between alcohol and cancer. It's just that's nobody right. spends any time talking about it because, you know, the cancer world isn't going to have tons of money to spend on that that thing. Yeah. I just wish the, the stuff that we all believe in, right? You know, and I'm not just all about yoga and meditation. There's all kinds of alternative approaches to feeling well on this planet. Um, but yeah. there's no money behind that stuff. No. No, you know, there's no money funding it. No, there's money in the farm. There's money in the pharmacy and in, in big pharma. There's money in big alcohol. There's money in tobacco. There's there's so much money in those three things. And and there's no money in marijuana. Right? You cannot understate no. the money oh behind God. marijuana right now. It's <laughs> crazy. Yeah, especially here and well, where we both live, California, Massachusetts. My family's in Colorado. It's crazy, yeah. crazy, crazy. But I want to. Um, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Laura. I was well. Uh, I wanted to see if we want to go in this direction because I I really want to hear you talk about the brain. And I was thinking like um, talking about, okay, so when you, when you were breaking down, when you guys were breaking down, like how um, one bottle is five, five servings um, of alcohol. And for me, when I, even when I wasn't at the worst of my drinking, sort of normal, quote unquote normal. I mean, it just wasn't a big deal for me. I would drink a bottle a night. No problem. Yeah. Every night. I had two to three. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, (laughs) it was very rare that I would only drink one. It was usually one and a half. And I would leave a little bit left in the bottom of the second one just to be like, I didn't kill two bottles, you know? So when well, can you say that again, Are you, and you started, you prefaced what you just said with, and this was before my alcohol became a problem, right? Uh, well, what I was saying is, no, it's not before my alcohol became a problem, but this is when I, it was obviously a problem that I'm drinking almost two bottles, but I still thought it was okay. Like, even uh-huh. consuming that amount, I was a little alarmed by it, but it it wasn't, I mean, I could still function, like, Right. 
I would get up and go to my job every single day and I would yep. do all the things and I yep. had, you know, a very functional life. So, and I worked in advertising and it was no big deal to anybody to drink yep. that much. So yep. what I was thinking of as we were talking about that is like, can you talk about, can we transition this to talk about the brain and what happens to the brain um, with alcohol and you can talk about other drugs too, but yeah. I just love how you explain it and like what was happening to my brain. Yeah. Um, so so I, I always make a very, I do a fairly simple uh, public analysis of how it is that alcohol and drugs affect the brain. And I spend most of my time on dopamine, but what Laura's describing is the fact that alcohol actually is very complicated in the brain because it, it works through both the GABA system and some glutamates and some dopamine, and it, it actually affects lots of things. And that what I always say is that the wheels come off that bus fairly late in the game because a lot of us drink too much and yet we function quite well. We may knock off on the couch sooner than we should. Maybe we weren't like the best book readers to our kids or we skipped bath mm -hmm. time or we left all the dinner dishes in. I mean, those, you know, you're not, those aren't terrible things that we all did but you know we we felt like we were pretty good moms and pretty good dog walkers and pretty good employees even though we were drinking way more than was considered healthy by any measure um yeah. because the brain first of all for millennia we've been drinking alcohol right i mean we have alcohol found in the very very earliest time frames um and the brain can accommodate it for a while before it starts to get anxious, irritable, edgy, and start it starts to need alcohol earlier and sooner and more just to feel more normal. So when we talk about the where all drugs or addictive behaviors ends up, it ends up in that reward circuit of the brain that produces the neurotransmitter dopamine. At the end of the day, everything impacts the dopamine system. It has multiple steps to get there. Some of the steps are very complicated, but the dopamine uh, system is what gets the most dysregulated. And dopamine is the neurotransmitter that gives you this sense of joy and euphoria, and that was awesome, and I, I need to repeat that behavior because it has to do with survival. It has to do with finding mm -hmm. food, and water, and sex, right? That's the whole dopamine reward circuit. And one of the things that um, I, I say all the time is that if we could pick up addiction and take it out of the part of the brain that has to do with my day-to-day -day survival on this planet and move it anywhere else in the brain, right? That you just lost your peripheral vision or you lost your high frequency sound. We moved it to the visual cortex, the auditory cortex. We moved it to another part of the brain. Addiction would be the easiest disease on the planet to take care of. It wouldn't be a big deal. And instead, yeah. it's an incredibly hard disease to manage and get people feeling better from because the part of the brain that is impacted is the part of your brain that tells you, I need to live and die. Yeah. Because yeah. it's dopamine that tells you to live and die. It's your survival neurotransmitter. Yeah. And it's and the drug. It's the drug. It's it's it has to do not with liking it. Like to make a, a really dis big distinction, it has to do not with liking it. It has to do with wanting. And can you like right. include that? Can you talk a little bit about the difference of that as you keep going? I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry. And also perseverating on yeah. it too. You talk about that. So those two behaviors that are associated with dopamine are have to do with whether it helps you survive or not. You have to have compu compulsivity, like I have to do this in order to stay alive, and perseverating, I can't stop thinking about it. Those are two of the behaviors that are associated with dopamine in the brain, which makes sense when it comes to your ancestors and you finding food and water and a mate to send your genetic material forward. That makes total sense. But when you take those two behaviors of compulsion, compulsivity, and perseveration, oh my God, my 
brain is thinking about it all the time. It's the last thing I think of before I go to bed. It's the first thing I think of in the morning. Um, those are two of the behaviors that help define what addiction is. And in fact, the brain has this terrible negative feedback loop that if you're not doing it, if you're not you know, shooting a bundle of heroin today or, or drinking your bottle and a half or two bottles of wine, it gives you this terrible feeling, not just depression, but this true deep dysphoria of I can't, I don't, I feel awful. My dopamine levels are in the toilet. The only way I can feel normal again is to re-engage with that behavior. And then it gets me back to my normal dopamine level. So it really, it breaks down the neurotransmitter um, system in the brain. So your baseline dopamine is no longer normal. It's in the toilet all the time, unless you're participating in that behavior. And those neurotransmitters and those receptors, they take months to years to get back to normal. They take a lot of work. Because the kind of things that help people get better are the things that you guys promote in your toolboxes, right? It it takes um, having a job and having a purpose and having people you love and, and taking care of an animal or taking care of the vulnerable and growing things in your backyard and physical exercise and feeling comfortable in your skin. I mean, the hardest thing about early recovery is allowing normal emotion to exist in your body because mm-hmm. for so long, so many of us run from emotion and hide and and run from trauma and sadness and fear by numbing ourselves up with drugs and alcohol. And that first 60 days, 90 days, 180 days of experiencing the normal range of human emotion is dreadful. I mean, even joy feels bad. Everything feels bad. It's scary, right? I so I want to go back to the okay so the beginning of of what you were talking about uh, in one of your talks like let's talk about dopamine so when people come into people come into um, before they meet the substance that works for them right whatever it is they you know either have a baseline dopamine of of you say a hundred or even you know for someone like me I'm pretty positive I had a lower than normal baseline dopamine level uh, as a depressed kid. Um, So when you talk about, like, can you just talk a little bit about like baselines, what food, what like, um, what food helps you hit, what sex helps you hit, what meth helps you hit, like, and then what alcohol helps you hit? Because I'm interested in what, where, where alcohol gets you in the range of, of a dopamine hit. Okay. Um, so you did just a perfect preface so that at a baseline, I make an argument, there's no way to measure this stuff without doing PET scans on everybody's brain, but this is not a serum blood test that you go see your primary care and say, I'd like my dopamine levels checked. We don't have a way to actually do that at this stage. Someday we'll get there. But at a baseline, we're all sitting at, let's say a hundred units. And some of us are happy, go lucky, golden retriever people. And we got an extra, at a baseline, we just have happier dopamine and we sit at 105 most days. And then there's a lot of us sort of what I think of as the dysthymic or the depressed, or the just sort of, it's hard to find a positive angle on anything kind of person, the Eeyores of the world who sit maybe at 85 or 90. And some of them have learned strategies to make themselves feel better, right? They, they know that they have to get a certain amount of exercise every day to feel normal, that they have to be doing their their sketching or, or watercoloring they do they they develop many people can develop healthy behaviors that make them feel better during the day um, and then when you find that perfect food which evolutionarily speaking was basically any food you could find you were able to kill a five point buck and feed your family for five days you get a spike in dopamine because your brain is saying awesome you killed a buck you get to keep your clan alive for five more days 
good survival technique. I'm going to spike your dopamine so you can return to this behavior. And your dopamine may spike to 150, and then it goes back to normal. Because your brain is saying, this is a survival behavior. Let's continue it. Um, You have sex, which means you're spreading genetic material forward, which is the entire purpose of every one of us on this planet, (laughs) although most of us aren't thinking it like that way every day. Um, But you get a spike in dopamine. It's consensual. You have an orgasm. You get a spike to 200 because your body says, good behavior, continuing the human race, keep it going. Um, And then it goes back to normal. It resets itself back at 100, and your brain recalls healthy behavior. Let's return to that. And when you use a drug like cocaine, your dopamine will spike to 350. Um, Probably uh, alcohol is in that same range, depending on where you are in the cycle, but maybe between 200 and 350 um, because it has a much it's a more complicated pathway to get to dopamine it's a little harder for me to give a set number any of these strong prescription opiates are now ranging between dopamine units of 500 to 900 fentanyl carfentanil is probably above that and when you use a drug like crystal methamphetamine your dopamine will spike between 1200 to 1300 so huge spikes in dopamine and the problem is when the brain sees those huge numbers, it says, holy smokes, there's something wrong. This isn't normal, right? For the 200,000 years we've been on the planet in this form, you should not be having dopamine levels of 900 or 1200 or 400. There's something wrong. So I need to turn down the volume. I need to downregulate. I need to stop making dopamine. I need to erase 80% of my receptors. I need to turn on every vacuum in sight and suck the dopamine out of the synaptic cleft. And so people, when they develop an addiction to a drug, they 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 have now reset their brain. So they're not making dopamine like they used to, and they're not experiencing the dopamine like they used to. And their new baseline getting up every morning is a 40 to 50. They feel terrible. And so when Laura describes being able to go to work on those days and days, there had to have been a point where you got up in the morning and thought, wow, I'm not feeling so good I need I need more things coming away. Sometimes it was Completely. alcohol, but I had other things that we were just feeling terrible. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I had a perfect cocktail going. Like I I took SSRIs and I you know caffeine and exercise and all. Yeah, I had to do all these things just to bring it back to like somewhere acceptable. Well, you also got you do get used to living with a sense of dread. I mean, I yes, have to make that really clear. Absolutely. It was like you just get used to you do get used to a paler set of colors, and also, and I want to talk a little bit about corticotropin releasing factor um, and and like hedonic set points. But I like also you one of the things that I talk about a lot um, in my school is just that we do get to a place uh, like anhedonia is a real thing, which is we don't get we we basically the way that that it starts to work is that you don't get pleasure out of normal things that bring you pleasure. I get pleasure like people say, what do you do for fun now that you're sober? And I'm like, I I look at buildings. I look at the sky. I hang out with my family. I eat, you know, like I eat a salad. Like these are big. These actually do give you like hits. These things give you hits of dopamine. They give you a sense of well-being um, because you actually can access them now because you're working from a stable baseline. You don't need huge spikes, you know, and like and like sex and like chocolate and coffee. Yeah. Coffee That's blows right. my mind. How long did it take you to get there? How 
long did it take? It didn't take me as long as it takes uh, uh, certain people. Uh, I was, I worked before I stopped drinking. I was meditating every day. I was uh, doing a lot of positive psychology work. I was doing yoga every day. I also was, um, I was really excited to, I was really excited about the freedom. Um, My life changed very quickly. And so I do know some people, like Laura was very different than me. And so I do, like, I am one of those people that actually um, was able to start in, like, I woke up pretty quickly. And so I did not, um, I had been in such hell um, for so long. And I was also still abusing pot and I was also still binging and purging. And so I was also getting certain fixes from a different level. But I, but, but I do want to say, I do want to talk about that just a little bit. And I also want to talk about corticotrophin um, because from what I understand, it's not that your baseline dopamine levels drop so much. It's also that you need a higher level of dopamine in order to hit like the hedonic set point. Like there's, I don't know if you're, do you know Kevin McCauley? Do you like, do you know his work? I do know his work. Yep. Okay. And so he talks about in Pleasure Unwoven, he talks about the stre- like stress, what happens with the interplay of stress and dopamine levels. And I thought that the downgrade, you say downgrade comes from the lack of, you know, the, the down, like the um, pruning of receptors, increased vacuums, like other things that the brain does in order to, to deal with excess dopamine in the system. I thought it was also, it releases more of the corticotropin releasing factor, which it is what's, okay. It does all of those things. I make a, I make it very simple, partly because my audience is so often just the straight public or just people who have, are not at your level of knowledge. You guys are, you guys are pretty advanced in your understanding of this whole thing. When I speak it, I'm often speaking to people less advanced. Okay. So you could put it on your, um, maybe as a link on your uh, podcast website, but I, I sent you what I always think of as the article I always return to when I'm trying to understand this stuff, which is the uh, neurobiologic um, understanding of addiction. And it's a New England Journal article from last year. I don't know. Did you guys ever read that article? It's Nora Volkow and George um, Koop. Koop. I don't think so. Well, did, where did you send, send it? it to you. I, well, I sent it on your Skype, but I can send it through email too as the PDF. But oh, so, I see. so Nora Volkow and George Coop, they work for the federal government. They work for NIDA and, and um, uh, the institute that does studies of alcohol. And um, those are, I mean, Nora Volkow, do you guys know her? She's yes, like, totally hot mm-hmm. and hip and an awesome mm-hmm. rock star and amazing like public speaker. She's just great. I have a huge crush on her. And she, so I've heard George Coop speak probably 10 times in a lecture on this exact subject, right? Going through all that you're describing and all the incredibly complicated pathways that happen with addiction. And every time I walked out of that lecture thinking, oh my God, I didn't understand it. Again, I didn't understand it. So it was only when I read this article multiple times, partly because I think Nora Volkow writes very clearly, that I thought, oh my God, now I'm understanding it for the first time. Because it's there, there are 29 things that go wrong. You know, there's probably 129 things that go wrong. We just don't know what they all are yet. Yeah. We're sort of in the very early phases of understanding this complex organ of your brain yes. to know everything that that goes wrong. Yes. Um, and so I agree with all that you're saying, Holly. And what I find interesting is how fast you did respond. And there's a part of me that wonders whether, you know, women get into trouble with alcohol faster than men because, you know, our physiology makes it so. But I also wonder sometimes whether we can be faster. I do. I mean, I think like there's, I mean, and in, in a very like um, non-scientific thing, I, I did kundalini training and there's, there is a lot of talk. Men, like women are, you know, I mean, it, the reason we can multitask, I mean, we're like, they say we're six tracked, like we can do all these different things 
things at once. And I do think that there is, you know, like uh, part of the other side of the coin of being so emotional or dynamic or cyclical and big is that we also can, you know, kind of access different uh, parts of us. And also we were, we are, I think we're a lot more, we are uh, allowed to be in touch with our emotions um, a lot more than men are. So I was allowed to have this very big, quick, explosive experience in my sobriety that maybe a man wouldn't have enjoyed, wouldn't have been able to enjoy with, you know, like the expectations, the societal norms. But, um, but yeah, I did, I did recover very fast in terms of, uh, which does not mean it wasn't hard, which doesn't mean that I didn't like still suffer severe depression, which doesn't mean that my anxiety just went away, which doesn't mean, you know, that later on a year later, I didn't, you know, completely drop in the toilet and like couldn't get out of bed for a while. But like my immediate experience was that I started to recover certain, like the, uh, the enjoyment of certain things, um, um, uh, without experience, severe adonia, uh, anadonia. And I do also yeah. think it was because I put so, I mean, my full-time job was just, um, was being happy. My full-time right. job was being, was, was fixing, you know, what was so broken. Um, right. but I, um, there is one other thing that I, I wanted to make sure that we talked about. Um, okay. So then like, so then can we talk about then what happens, like why stress is such a, like, so that the part I was trying to drive at was there's also something that happens, um, to the brain when, when, when people that are recovering from addiction are under stress, um, there is like, and it, and it Kevin McCauley talks about this in pleasure unwoven where when people are under, um, when they're under, uh, when they're under like, like this idea that when people are, I'm trying to think of how to say it. When people are under the most stress, right? Like when they're like the day before a court appearance or the day before, um, you know, like something that is a really big event when they're like, when it's actually on the line and they're not supposed to be drinking, when people are exposed to a higher level of stress, um, is, is when a lot of times when they end up drinking after they've been trying to quit, which has a lot to do with what we were just talking about. Can you kind of talk about in, in maybe some like more simpler terms than what I just said, why, um, like why stress management? Management is so important when we're talking about recovery and and what happens to the brain. Um, I don't know, love. I don't know if I'm going to be great on, on talking about it through the brain. I can I can say to you that I am a thousand percent appreciative of of its role in people's lives, and we actually put people in a huge amount of stress when they're struggling with a substance use. Like it's just what you said. I mean, many people who are struggling with a substance use are incarcerated. They have multiple court dates and warrants out for their arrest, and they've their wife has walked out of them, and they lost their license, and they don't have a job, and they can't afford their rent. And like, name all the things that fall apart in your life, and that's the average person who's actively struggling with a substance use disorder. So here they are feeling terrible, desperately trying to get help to get some sobriety going on for them, and we throw every stressful circumstance imaginable at them. And um and if you can imagine, instead, we took somebody who was struggling and said, hey, here's a warm, safe, loving place where we're going to work on, on quieting down your system. Or we're going to do some Reiki therapy and some craniosacral massage. And we're going to actually give you a haircut. We're going to act like we love you and care about you. Yeah. And I'm going to call your probation officer and tell them you're here and they need to leave you alone for the next 45 days. And we're going to go out and we're going to work with the horses and raise some chicks and get some yeah. eggs for the Western Mass Food Bank. Like, There's a place, a magical place that the three of us could come up with where people could really get 
some improvement um, with their overall health and where all the stressful things we throw at people are gone away. One of the hardest things for me, and I speak about this because I'm the medical director of a jail, is um, the role that incarceration of people for their substance use has played in disenfranchising people and making them worse. Because I tell you, jail is an incredibly stressful place to be. And we actively put people in terrible, severe withdrawal. As soon as they walk in, there are very few people that treat addiction in the setting other than with some barely um, functional comfort meds. And they're, you know, vomiting and having terrible diarrhea in a 10 by 10 cell with a guard looking at them. They're miserable. We we literally put their lives on the line when they're there withdrawing from an alcohol use disorder. And, and then we just keep them locked up and isolated and not engaged in any treatment. And um, I don't know who in your listening audience can believe that the right answer for people is to going to, to jail. jail. Yeah. yeah. And not only that, it just perpetuates a stigma that it's wrong, that it's a moral failing and that it's a, that it's a moral failing. I mean, that's it, that it's a moral failing and that you need to be like that punitive measures are what you deserve. And this is like a widely held public belief. Like I know people that are very, that I'm very close with that understand my addiction very well. That still, when they see somebody that's suffering from addiction, that person's not like me. They're different. They're bringing this on themselves. They deserve what they're getting. Can you believe they did it again? And so it's just very, like the public holds people in contempt because it gets at the br- the part of the brain that is so um, that controls that that actually controls our ability to make good decisions and so it's um, yeah. yeah the last thing I want to talk about and then um, Laura do you have any more questions are you you've been quiet no you go there? ahead oh, okay yeah um, is um, do you believe like so have you read any of Mark Lewis's work. I love how well read you guys are. I go to bed with like knowing the journal at night and, and I'm reading a book on Indian elephants at the moment. So no, no, I haven't, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm Amazon ordering while I'm talking to you. Okay, cool. He's, I just, I think it'd be really interesting to hear what you'd have to say and we can maybe do a follow-up conversation on this. So his, his he um, basically asserts that addiction isn't a disease. It is, and he's a, he's a neurobiologist and he's read, you know, he's read all the same stuff and his, uh, his his contention is that it is a it is the brain doing what the brain was designed to do just being met with um with like what we talked about things that the brain never anticipated encountering and so he doesn't look at it as a disease he looks at it as um i mean he doesn't deny any of the things that we were talking about he uses the same exact science and has the same exact beliefs and you know believes in compassionate care and recovery and all that but he also just kind of moves into saying um the brain is actually doing what the brain was designed to do um it's just a pathological overlearning of of um of um addictive loops i don't know i think it'd be i I would be interested to hear after you read it what you thought yeah and the, the truth is i you know i'm sure i probably agree with this guy you know it's it it works when you're trying to convince a bunch of people out there that this is no different than having congestive heart failure the disease model works in my favor that's all that's i will say right. i mean no, most, i know yeah. right and most diseases are you know come up because people have stressful traumatized lives and yeah. i could i could actually say many of the diseases i take care of during the day are, are not those things at all right they're poor right. circumstances and and poverty and terrible right. food choices and they're just a a single individual 
in front of me who happens to have a bunch of ICD-10 codes associated with them in a chart. And yet they're just a human being who's trying to live a fully actualized life. And uh, I would love to decrease the disease burden that people have, right? And in fact, I spend a lot of my day like uh, uh, not medicating, under medicating, taking meds away from people because I try not to pathologize them as much. And acknowledging the role of pharmaceuticals, it has a a fairly small role in terms of how well people are doing. I believe in blood pressure control, but not Mm -hmm. over controlling it. I think diabetes is an industry that exists to sort of fund itself. Real diabetes exists, but if everybody were able to make awesome food choices and and, and losing weight was easy and not instead terribly difficult, um, a lot of our diabetes could just disappear in many many of the chronic conditions. And I'm not going to say, you know, I think mental illness is one of those things where you and I can come after anxiety and depression with some lifestyle decisions that are different that may improve us, but many people particularly those with severe mental illness, those those are some of the hardest um, diagnoses to help people with because people with severe diseases do terribly, you know, and, and there's not enough resources out there to help them. And the meds work, you know, a certain for a certain percent of the time for some people. And this country doesn't doesn't value the care of, of mental health disorders and its impact That's on right. us. I mean, think how much all of us on this phone have have struggled with anxiety or depression or have family members with bipolar disease or schizophrenia. I mean, they're te- they're devastating diseases. Yes. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. No, it's um. I think it is like there is. Uh, I I really completely agree. Like it, that the disease model works in the favor of actually getting it treated. Like like the way yes. that our country works and the way we where we throw money, we throw money at if we can medicalize it, right? If we can actually That's say right. that this is an issue. And so I do think that that is a very important distinction. Like you know, patients versus prisoners. Um, and also I think it's it's one of those things that I, again also comes back to that conversation we were having at the beginning, where it's also like it matters also just. So so much what we do for people as whole people and not just their broken parts. Um, right. So. I love you too. I love the work that you're doing. You got to, you got to keep doing it and we got to get your message spread out to more people. And same. Thank you. Like thank it you. is, I mean, you are just like, you're too good to be true. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Um, Thanks, you guys. And do I, I'm going to send you that article a different way or did you I got not it. see it? I found it. Found okay, it. I'm going to read it right now. It's, it's yeah. a worthwhile read and post it somewhere because I think it's a PDF that other people can struggle through as much as I've struggled through. Yeah. Yeah. No. Thank you so much. Thanks, you guys. Thanks Have a great us. day wherever you are. All right. Thanks, you okay. too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.